0: <clears throat> well, good morning again all of you. Uh, happy All Saints Day to you. This, is, this previous week you may realize was the Feast of All Saints Day and the uh, Feast of All Souls. Um, the logic there is the Feast of All Saints draws our attention to those saints who have um, given, them, given themselves to the faith, uh, usually martyrs and so on. And then the Feast of All Souls following quickly after it is the day where we recognize all those who have gone before us uh, in life and faith, and uh, our tradition all, often collapses them into one, and I actually don't think that 's a bad idea. it makes sense to me. We are all saints uh, in the kingdom of God, those who are of us who are baptized or will be baptized into his name. but uh, by way of entry i'm going to talk a little bit this morning about Haggai, surely your favorite minor prophet and um, and I will I'll open this this sermon with a, a quick story. Uh, just this past week, I had the experience, my family had the experience that you might have had before. Um, some developers in our uh, bought several homes in our neighborhood, and <clears throat> so on Wednesday morning, I woke up to the sounds of heavy construction, so much so that I, I walked out of our back door, looked up above the trees, and there was the boom of an excavator uh, swinging um, above the bushes. And because I have two kids... Maybe not. Uh, I had to go check it out. So I took my uh, one-year-old daughter and my two-year-old son over to watch the destruction. They were tearing these houses down. And my two children, again, one-year-old daughter and two-and- a half-year-old son, had very, very different responses, which I found fascinating. My daughter loved it. Strange. She clapped her hands whenever a big wall would come crumbling down or something. And then my son had a a more tender response. As they were doing their work, he he turned to me and he said, Daddy, is that house sad? I said, I don't know. It could be. Then he said, is that digger nice? Good question. I said, I think so. And then he said, is it coming to our house? (laughs) And I said, it depends on how you behave. Uh, and I know I'm his dad, but I—it's I, a smart kid right there. Come on. Um, but anyway, by by about 8:30 in the morning, point is, the house was basically gone. There was just nothing there. I mean, in a matter of what an hour and a half, it was completely destroyed. And I think my son was actually onto something. Uh, there was a prophecy in the Old Testament about wisdom coming from the mouth of babes, and this is one such moment, because. As we stood uh, in the early morning light looking at the destruction of this nondescript pile of debris, I couldn't help but also feel that there was some moral uh, quality, quality to this. And, and I don't mean the sort of frenzied progression of development in real estate in Nashville. That is, uh, that is here to stay. What I mean is here, here was a house where people had lived and grown, probably had families, And then in an hour and a half, it was gone. Just not there. You see, destruction, it has a moral quality to it. If not, it gives a sense of unease even when we see it occur. And I bring up this story because this is almost precisely what we see in our Old Testament reading from the second chapter of Haggai. It is when the Israelites come back to Jerusalem, their beloved city, And they look around. It's after the Babylonians have destroyed it. And God says, what do you see? And of course, Jerusalem is nothing. And so it makes me wonder, and probably you as well, why would God ask them a question when he already knows the answer? They knew what was going on. And I think it's because, it's because of this. I think it's because God knew and wanted them to know with absolute clarity that he had amazing plans for Israel, far more than they could imagine or deserved or even dreamt of. And he wanted them to know that it was not them who would do it, but it was him. So the book of Haggai, as you probably know is uh, one of the 12 Minor Prophets. The Minor Prophets are situated at the the very end of the Old Testament canon. And in fact, Haggai is situated at the very end of the 12 Minor Prophets. And it is uh, full of language that is very similar to many of the other Minor Prophets. However, it is unique in that it is one of the post-exilic works. What that means is while most of the other prophetic material, which is a huge portion of the Old Testament, is often about what God will do, It's about what God is going to do uh, through the Babylonians and through the Assyrians. It's about prophecies of all manner. Largely, it's about the exile that they'll be brought into. But the post-exilic books are about that strange period after the Israelites have already gone under exile. They've come back to to their homeland, and they begin to rebuild. And you know how this story goes. The root of it all was they had been unfaithful to God, They had been sent off to Babylon. They spent 70 years there. And then, in God's mercy, He brings them back to the land that He had given them after they had come out of Egypt. And so, 70 years have passed at the beginning of Haggai. And all of Israel is gone. The temple is destroyed, the city is destroyed. And so under the leadership of a governor named Zerubbabel, you heard his name at the beginning of the re- reading, it's a wonderful name to say, Zerubbabel, and a priest named Joshua, they begin to rebuild. And they begin with the walls, which is both a smart way to build, but also theologically significant, can't go in there, but, uh, but that was all um, recorded in Ezra and Nehemiah. But eventually, through the prophet Haggai, God calls his people to rebuild the very uh, heart of their life which is the temple. The sacred place where God himself could dwell with man. And what's interesting is, is this temple that they build, that they begin to build, it's called the second temple. It's the second temple built after the destruction, is in fact the temple that Jesus Christ will one day walk into in the New Testament. So it's special. And I think all of this makes sense on uh historical level, you can see this work out, but it also works out on this prophetic level, on a scriptural level as well. We see it occurring even in our reading. So, in chapter chapter 2 of the opening verses, there is nothing there, the scene is set. Then God says, do not be afraid. He says, I will be with you. He says, I am strong. Verses 4 and 5, then He says, soon I will shake the earth and the sea and the land. I will shake all of the nations. And desire or the treasure of the nations will come in. And I think this verse, verse 7, verses 7 and 6, they are, they're kind of like a diamond almost. They are uh, perfectly cultivated, uh, perfectly uh, constructed so that we can see multiple beautiful angles. They're worth beholding. There are multiple vantage points here. So on a literal level, I think that these verses refer to the valuable goods that will adorn the second temple that they will build. And it's this fact. The gold that was plundered from the Egyptians and the Babylonians and the Assyrians would furnish the temple that they built the second go-round. It would also be furnished with wood from neighboring countries, all seeking uh, to form a sort of diplomatic union with Israel. So in other words, God shakes the nations in bringing Israel back to their land, and the temple of God is adorned with the treasures of the known world. But I think there's also more here. We can turn the diamond even further. I'm hesitant to mention this, it might be too early, but there's a wonderfully articulated line from the famous hymn, Hark the Herald Angel Sing. Uh, the line isn't included in our hymnal, but is from the original, which was written by Charles Wesley. And it says, Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Adam's likeness, Lord, efface. Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Of course, Wesley here is, is quoting directly from Haggai chapter 2, the passage we just read from verses 6 and 7. And I think he gets it right. He points out something that would be easy to miss. The desire of the nations is not simply the gold that's plundered from the Babylonians and the Assyrians, but it is none other than Christ Jesus himself. He's the one who re-stamps the image of God onto all of us through the Spirit. He's the one who re-establishes us so that we can abide in the love of God. And, as Wesley puts it, he is the one who is the actual deepest longing of every nation under heaven. And Augustine, hundreds of years before in his famous work, The City of God, he actually says almost the exact same thing. He says, when Christ comes, the heavens are shaken because a star points out the place of his birth. He said, the laws of nature are also shaken because a virgin bears an infant into the world. And then finally, he says, the seas are shaken, again, quoting specifically from Haggai 2. Because there is no nation, finally, who will not know the lordship of God Almighty. So you see, the point is, Jesus is the one who shakes all things in his coming in to the world. And eventually, this prophecy is fulfilled perfectly in Luke chapter 2, when Jesus, the young boy, walks into the temple, the Son of God himself, the desire of all nations, comes in to the temple built by Zerubbabel and Joshua. It's fulfilled. But that's not quite satisfying enough, is it? And I think, in fact, there is more here, if you'll believe it. Remember, God says He will fill the temple with the treasure of every nation. He says the silver is His, the gold is His, and that in this temple He will establish his peace, the Hebrew word there, shalom, it's a word you probably know. It's a holistic sense of well-being and satisfaction. And while that prophecy might make sense in these verses about the second temple or about Jesus himself, don't you think there is something more to be uh, pondered here? Doesn't it ask, make you ask for questions of, of greater clarity? Because, for instance, if you think about it, the second temple, what happens to it? It's destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans. And the peace that Jesus brings, it's very real, but is there not also immense upheaval in his coming into the world? And so these prophecies, they ask us to look for and search for something that is deeper and bigger and truer than even bears witness in the historical realities that we confront every single day. Think about it this way. In Isaiah 11, do you remember the promise given? It says, the wolf shall lie with the lamb, the bear and the ox shall graze together, and that hurt and destruction will be no more. Well, where is that? You see, these passages, they are not just about the world as we know it. And the same way that that vacant lot isn't just about the vacant lot, and the same way that our lives are not just about our lives, there is, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, something far deeper to hope for. My point is, Haggai 2, Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 31, Lamentations 3, all of these passages, they're about a day of perfect peace. They promise a day when every desire will be met. They promise a day when every pain will be undone. They promise a day when every longing will be satisfied. And when every nation will live together in perfect union. See, it's all there. All in these prophecies from the Old Testament, they force us to lift our gaze, not just to the circumstances of the world, but to ponder exactly what God can do. Nothing into something. Destruction to glory. This is the God of Jesus Christ, of course, the one who goes from death into life. So with those New Testament glasses on, we can turn again to our passage, and we begin to see it with even greater clarity. Think about it. The temple in Haggai, according to the New Testament, it's no longer a building that can be deconstructed or destroyed. It is none other than the body of the risen Jesus Christ, perfectly established at the right hand of God. The silver and the gold, all the wealth of the nations that could be plundered and stolen, no longer the case. Because, of course, according to the New Testament, it is you and me who furnish. We are the jewels. We are the resplendent furniture and the temple of God Almighty. And then that peace that's promised, the shalom, the great well-being, the satisfaction of every single feature of our society and culture, it's no longer a treaty or a ceasefire. It's no longer an agreement to disagree its perfect fellowship, oneness with one another because of what Christ Jesus has done on our behalf. Don't you see, this prophecy, there's so much more here. And I would ask us not to miss what this most means for us on a day like today, on All Saints Day and a day where we baptize infants. If you think about it, this day is the perfect frame for the Christian life, Again, think about it, we have people celebrating those who have gone before us. Many of us in here are thinking about those whom we lost this past year, reflecting on where they are at the right hand of God, and then many of us are thinking about the infants that we're about to baptize. And it says something, this passage, about the life in between. What does it say? It says that it's shaky. And I don't know about you, but I certainly feel that that can be the case. Sense of unease a sense of wonder, a sense of uh, questioning. But the promise given here is that in this great shaking of the nations, the treasure of God is wrought and lifted into the hands of God Almighty. So friends, if you are here to celebrate those who have gone before Remember where they are. They have been shaken, tested, brought into the everlasting temple of God. And if you are about to baptize an infant today, I'd encourage you to think about how the great promises of God are established, not outside of the shakiness of this world, but in and through it. When you baptize your children, the promise is not that they will be safe. It's that they are covenanted to God and they belong to Him forever. So, friends, I'd invite all of you to believe in the promise given in that great hymn. Come, desire of nations, come, fix in us thy humble home. God lays his glory by, in order that man no more may die, in order to raise the sons of earth that we all might enjoy the second birth. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.